Hello everyone. Welcome to the episode 5 of podcast series Venture Journey. I'm your host Abhinav and topic of today's episode is Venture Exits and it is my great pleasure to introduce my first guest for the year 2020, the rockstar of the Canadian VC ecosystem, Whitney Rockley, co-founder and managing partner of Macro Capital. Whitney has spent 20 years as venture capitalist and has had number of exits under her belt including two in the last year to give you a sense of her track record she was one of the investors behind ragadcom which was acquired by siemens for over 500 million dollars and pure technologies which was acquired by zalum for 550 million in july 2019 she sold newbo a data analytics company to nasdaq listed company aspentech for over 100 million and closed out 2019 with the acquisition of decisive farming by tellus whitney is also part and first female chair of canadian venture capital and private equity association the cvca she and her co-founder created macrock which is now widely considered the world's first dedicated industrial internet of things fund macrock invests in tech companies in canada the us and europe including israel welcome whitney it's a pleasure to have you here Thank you very much Happy. So Whitney, jumping direct to discussion now. And even before we start discussing about exits, I wanted to know about that during the diligence process, do founders understand the importance of exit for investors? Is this something that gets discussed or should we discuss while raising funds? Yes, it's a it's a good question and it's a hard one to answer because I think some entrepreneurs, some founders are thinking about exit because they think of all the hard work that they've put in and they're thinking when am I going to have a big payday and and be able to uh kind of do my next venture again um some of them might be thinking how do I sit on the beach and just relax for you know a couple of weeks um but it but it really varies and so you know some of the founders will look at it and and actually bring it up as as what they're thinking from a liquidity exit perspective but most founders especially when they're fundraising they're not their mind isn't initially going to how am i going to exit my company and many of them are so proud and rightfully so really proud about what they've created that their mind isn't even going to how do i how do i exit this phenomenal company that i've personally created so it it truly is the investor's responsibility to make sure that they talk about exit to the founders during the due diligence process. I've got lots of stories I can share uh during this podcast, but I can say we've walked away uh from companies that we've really liked and entrepreneurs that we've really liked because we don't have alignment on exit and it's probably in my humble view it's probably the number one mistake investors make which is not talking about exit right up front with entrepreneurs when they're actually starting their due diligence process. So is it just the early stage founders or even the late stage founder they don't think because we can understand the early stage founder like it's it might be the first or like they will be quite new on this road shows but late stage they have experience. So which founders face this issue like it's just uh, do you have you seen a trend with any specific founder or stage of founders while they're raising funds Yeah again really really good question I think that founders that are a bit more experienced have grown their business perhaps from you know obviously no revenue to 20 and 30 and 40 and we have some entrepreneurs that are kind of at the 50 million dollar revenue mark they absolutely are mindful of exit and and they're mostly mindful of it again for selfish reasons they're looking at it and thinking how can i perhaps um cash in a little bit and 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 get get some money so i can pay off my mortgage be able to exhale a little bit because now i've got some some money in the bank and continue to grow the business so as as a company kind of goes on this this growth journey and i revenue growth journey not capital raising you know journey but revenue growth journey i think many entrepreneurs start thinking about liquidity and and how how do they how do they structure that and i know we'll we'll get into this uh during our discussion but but there are so many ways to have liquidity you know it's not always through acquisition and i think if you look especially on the toronto stock exchange for instance um and many stock exchanges but the tsx is brilliant on this side 
there are companies that are really well suited for, for going public. And so that's the one thing that I would say is you can go public, you can stay proudly private, and then structure a number of secondary transactions by staying proudly private as long as you're growing. Um, really, you know, growing from a very attractive standpoint to, to make sure that you get a premium on the secondary. Or, of course, you've got the more, you know, traditional and obvious route, which is you go through acquisition. Speaking about the exit, what investment terms do entrepreneurs need to be mindful when they're securing the VC funding as it pertains to exit? For example, liquidation preference, redemptions, special liquidity committees. Do you want to highlight a few of them? Yeah, this, so the investment terms are, are really critical and they're multifaceted. And I think you understand this, hopefully for the listeners, they've also perhaps experienced a few things. I'm going to say maybe a few controversial comments on this because it's really critical for founders, entrepreneurs um, to, to really grasp these investment term concepts and what they mean. So let's talk first about valuation and dollars raised. So as we know, entrepreneurs, they want the highest valuation they can get for their company. And they want the, they want the highest valuation, obviously, because they just don't want to be diluted in their ownership position. But high valuations don't necessarily translate into successful exits which then translate into lots of money in your pocket, right? And, yeah. and that is the end goal. We as investors, we actually want the founders that we back and the entrepreneurs that we back to be highly, highly financially successful. And so when you think about an entrepreneur's mindset and they're like, I want the highest valuation, I want to raise a crap load of money, and I want to just you know, protect my ownership position, if you think about the acquisition exit landscape, about 80% or more, I'd suspect it's actually closer to 90% now, about 90% of uh, exits are actually valued between 75 million and 150 million. Oh. Okay? So this is something that people don't necessarily think of. They think, I am going to be, because you're inherently optimistic as an entrepreneur, and I'm the same way as an entrepreneur in, in, our, in our own firm, but you inherently think, I am going to be that billion-dollar company, and all the power to you to be that billion-dollar company. Although, if you want to try and just kind of manage within the bell curve, you've got to think about, how do I position my company to be the most attractive company, again, on an acquisition type scenario, not an IPO scenario or staying private and, and doing the secondaries, but that still applies. But how do I stay attractive to the widest number of acquirers in the universe so I can become wealthy um, and then take the proceeds and, and kind of do my next big thing? And so I think many entrepreneurs are pricing themselves out of the exit market because they're not thinking of the full picture. They're thinking about, I want to get the highest valuation and I want to raise the most amount of money. At our firm, we stay squarely within our swim lane and we say, we actually look for companies where we can have a justifiable, reasonable valuation. And a lot of times we'll have entrepreneurs that'll say, no, we're just not keen on that valuation and they walk. And we don't like companies that are raising an obscene amount of money. We actually think it's completely counterintuitive because you just need to do the math. And so I'll, I'll just kind of share, a, share a, an idea here or a lesson. If you're a seed company and you're an entrepreneur and you say, I think I'm valued at $10 million and I'm going to raise my first seed round at five. So obviously your, your valuation is $15 million. And then you do your A round and you're like, I want to double my valuation. So I now, or maybe triple my valuation. So now you go to a $30 million pre-money valuation. You raise $20 million because you think that's what you should do for a series A. Cause you've read all these reports that say series A rounds are now $20 million. So that's what I have to raise. Now your valuation is $50 million and that's only at a series A, right? And then they go, my goodness. And, and there's been enough studies to say, regardless of how much you raise, you go through it in 18 to 24 months. So think about how you want to, again, grow your business the best you can on a reasonable, but not crazy and not too low amount of capital. Then you go into a series B round and you say, I want the valuation to be, you know, 
twice what I did the A. So now you're up to 75 million and you raise 50 million, you're up to 125 million. Now you are on the outside kind of cusp of where most of the acquisition values actually exist in the tech sector. That's the dirty little secret. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, I want to be that billion dollar company, which isn't a bad thing. But when you're actually looking at the data, you've kind of got this, this range and now you're there. And then most companies, of course, do a C round. And when they do the C round, they're saying, all right, my valuation has to be higher because, man, look at all the money I've raised, look at all, look at all the progress I've made. So now they're at $150 million pre and they're raising $100 million and now they're at $250 million. So looking at the exit environment, now if you're a cybersecurity company or even a robotics company and you look at some of the exits that have been happening in those spaces, you can actually make a case to say you perhaps can sell a company for half a billion and up because historically you can you can look at those sectors and get comfort with it. However, if you are a electric vehicle charging company, an EV charging company, if you look historically at the at the acquisition prices of those types of companies, rarely will you see a company that is purchased for over 150 million. So it it really is calibrating the, the kind of incoming valuation and how much you truly need to raise, not what, what you think you should raise, but what you truly need to raise by doing a lot of you know, analytics in your own business to where you think the exit environment is going to be yeah. and how you can position for success. And this, the valuation range, which you said, is it just Canadian or it's global? Global. It's, it's global. global. Yes, very much. And actually, those stats specifically have been um, kind of highlighted specifically in the U.S. Okay. So, so I can, I, 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 for, for those that, that can't see Abby's face right now, he's looking at me going, no, I don't believe it. I think she's talking Canadian context. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm actually talking U.S. And it could be a, yeah, a follow-on yeah, follow podcast perhaps for yeah. Sure. For kind of ha let's really look at the exit landscape yeah. and, and where it's at. And you can bring in an investment banker who can kind of really paint the picture on it. Now, there's other terms. So that's just valuation and how much you raise. The liquidation preference is the obvious one that most people think of when they're, they're kind of going down the exit kind of path. And I remember probably 10, even 15 years ago when we were in a pretty tough market correction we would see liquidation preferences that were three to four times participating. And I'll explain what that means. But it was highly uh, skewed towards the investor, not the entrepreneur. There was no way an entrepreneur would ever really make money. And, and it was really a reflection of where the market was at at the time. Um, today, what we see is obviously a 1x non-participating liquidation preference, and we see a 1x participating liquidation preference. Those are really the two, two types of terms that we see. If I were coaching an entrepreneur, I would say, entrepreneur, you must negotiate to have a 1x non-participating liquidation preference. If obviously I'm an, I'm an investor, I will always start with at least a, a 1x participating liquidation preference. And just, just again to kind of explain this, a 1x non-participation liquidation preference means that really you just get the choice of you can get your money out and your dividends at your choice if you actually have dividends. We don't actually ask for dividends, but you can get your money out plus dividends. Um, or you can convert on an as-converted basis into common, and then you just get whatever percentage ownership you have of the company, and then you take that of the proceeds. So to put that kind of into an example, if you sold a company for $100 million, and you invested $10 million, and you own 20% of the company, option one, which is just take your original investment amount out, and if you have dividends, that would be you get $10 million plus a little bit. But obviously, in this scenario, you want to convert uh, on an as-converted basis into common. So you still keep all your rights and preferences as a preferred shareholder, but you convert on an as-converted basis. And now, obviously, you own 20%, and you get 20% of the 100, which is 20 million. So that's kind of the that's kind of the math that you do with a non-participating liquidation pre preference. Now, when you're looking at a 1x participating preference, this is essentially this is just a double dip. 
So this is, this is something that I hazard to say a lot of entrepreneurs that aren't terribly sophisticated don't understand until the time of a liquidation event. And essentially what this means is the investor gets the money out, um, their original investment amount out, plus any dividends if they, if they choose to have that uh, in their terms. And then they get to participate on an as-converted basis on any of the remaining proceeds. So in the example that I, I gave, um, if I had invested $10 million into a company that was uh, sold for $100 million, I would get my $10 million back first before anybody else, well, except for those that came into that round with me, but I'd get my $10 million back. I'd get any dividends on top of that. And then I would get 20% of all of the proceeds. So it, it, that's why it's deemed to be a double dip. Um, and I do, I do think it's pretty aggressive, although I will say for the companies that I've been involved in over my career, it's now spanning about 25 different investments. There, there has been a time where having a 1x participating liquidation preference as an investor has actually helped us considerably, not necessarily get all of our investment money back sometimes, but in other times it just creeps you past kind of getting your investment money back and a, and, and a little bit more from there. And then redemption. Redemption is a, is, a, is a hot potato because some investors absolutely insist on redemption. And redemption is simply you require the company to provide you with uh, cash for your shares after a certain period of time. And it, it's, a, it's a very aggressive term. And it is, again, very um, investor-friendly, not entrepreneurial-friendly. Our view is any time an investor is actually saying, I'm going to trigger that redemption clause, it tends to be because the company is distressed and the chances of an investor getting money out is, is very slim. However, I did have an experience recently with a company who has had phenomenal revenue growth and the investors were very adamant, the early investors, that they, they trigger their redemption, structure a, a special liquidity committee and force the company to provide them with liquidity. And I found it fascinating because the CEO actually had quite a bit of empathy and said, I get it. You know, you've been on this journey for quite some time and I do want to provide you with liquidity. As an investor in that company and not being one of the earlier investors and, and, and not needing that type of a requirement, I thought it was incredibly onerous and a massive distraction for the company. Yeah. So I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, we don't advocate at McRock for redemption. And like I said, we don't advocate for, for dividends either. So hopefully that, that gives a bit more context, but those are the, probably the four ones. Think really carefully about valuation and it's counterintuitive. Don't go necessarily for the highest valuation, yeah. especially if you need to raise a fair bit of capital. Think about how much capital you truly need to raise Think about that liquidation preference as an entrepreneur and really, really fight hard for a non-participating liquidation preference. And then think carefully about redemption and whether or not you will have animosity towards those investors yeah. should they really insist to trigger the redemption. Yeah. So for the founders, so if any VC forces to have, say, redemption clause or participating clause with, say, 2x or 3x, is that a red flag for the founder? To look for another VCs? Oh yes. Uh, again, I would say that if ever an entrepreneur gets a liquidation preference that's beyond 1x in today's market, here we are at the start of 2020, yeah. run, run. Okay. And, and from a redemption standpoint, it's a bit of an individual choice as to whether or not you want to choose redemption. There, there are ways to provide liquidity, like we said at the beginning of the podcast. You could look at going public, and that could provide you know, the investors with the, the necessary liquidity that, that they need. And it still uh, very much keeps control, well, not necessarily you know, financial control, but the founder slash CEO can stay at the helm of the ship, especially when they go public. Yeah. So that's, the, that's the, the kind of the perspective I would give entrepreneurs is to be very cautious about um, any non-standard terms or any terms that really could put you in a difficult position 
three to four years down the road. Don't think about survival necessarily just over the next six months, which I know many of the founders, including ourselves, when we were trying to get our firm off the ground, we were so short-term focused that we had to really stop and say, okay, is this investor going to truly help us as we grow or are they going to handcuff us as we as we kind of try and grow this company and be prepared to walk away and find other investors if it doesn't work. So when you said short-term focus, how many years? What's short-term for a VC to exit and what's the average period to exit? So uh, if I take a step back as, uh, as a venture investor, most venture capital firms have a, a life of their fund of 10 years. Yeah. And then you've got the option of having two one-year extensions. And we have, in the first five years, we have got our active investment period. And in the last five years is your harvest period where you're trying to exit. So obviously, you're trying to invest in earlier stage companies at the beginning of your active investment period. So you've got a longer period of time in order to exit. And normally, you're not exiting early stage companies. You're exiting companies that have shown really good demonstrable revenue growth and have been able to kind of take the company forward. So normally, VCs will say to you, we expect to exit between five years and maybe seven years. Some of them, like us, will say, we actually would like to exit kind of between four and six years. But the big question that entrepreneurs need to ask is, where are you in your investment fund? Because if you are in year five of your active investment period, you need to exit really, truly kind of in year four. And, and if they're saying, oh, year five, again, it's kind of hooey. I wouldn't believe it. I would say no, because if you actually work everything backwards, you've got to start that exit process a couple of years before it actually consummates. So... Speaking of macro capital per se, when do you decide to exit a portfolio? Is there any specific triggers? Do you have any playbook or how it's it's totally market driven? No, um, we are steadfast and diligent on our exit strategy and plan. The very first thing that we do is we uh, bring this up, of course, during our due diligence to make sure that we've got exit alignment. We do a tremendous amount of analysis on exit uh, as we're evaluating the company by way of where we think the valuation of the company will go based on what they can actually accomplish and how exciting predominantly the analytics component of what they're building can create by way of value and, and use cases. And we share all of that analysis and information with the company before we invest. Once we invest, we have our quarterly, typically quarterly board meetings. We actually have as a standing item in every single one of our board meetings, exit strategy and exit process. And it keeps it, it's a, it's a habitual trick that we use to keep it top of mind. You're not saying that you're exiting next week or next year, but what you're saying is, what does that exit map look like? Who do we have to get close to over the next few years? And, and, and not just which companies, but which individuals in those companies do we get close to? And we literally do a divide and conquer, like, okay, you take this company and this individual, and, and, and you take this company and this individual. And then we, we have that as part of our, our, our exit roadmap. But make no mistake, most of the acquirers um, in, in any given company can also be partners, they can be customers, and most of the acquirers tend to be that first. So if anything, this is a very broad business development strategy that could end up in exit. And we'll track who the most acquisitive companies are in any space that we're investing and be intentional about trying to get into those companies. So it's, it's incredibly intentional. Now, uh, what are the triggers was one of your questions. And, and given this kind of upfront process that we have and we recognize um, that you don't all of a sudden come into the office and go, or into a board meeting and think, I'm going to sell your company today, or you're going to sell your company because it's been an ongoing discussion. There, there are a lot of things that will trigger us to accelerate and start actioning in a much more concrete way the exit process. So obviously, if you've got, if you've got groups that are starting to circle you and are showing 
quite a bit of interest in acquisition and you think that you're going to be able to hit your target returns and the founders are, are on side for it, then that's great. That's the obvious one that kind of says, okay, it looks like we're going in the right direction. And we've had a case where the founders are just super excited about the acquirers. They look at it and think strategically they'll be able to take their business from where it is today and advance it far higher. So I've had it where entrepreneurs or founders have actually advocated for exit, which, which is a nuance that I don't think people talk about very often. And if we think that there is a market window to exit before there is a correction in the market, we will sometimes have that trigger an exit, again, as long as the founders and the key management team agree with the approach. And obviously, the, the one that nobody wants to acknowledge or talk about is when a company is not growing and you know, the management team is just not performing and we are founder, we are founder focused. So we're not big advocates of, of actually um, terminating founders. We actually believe that founders have the institutional memory and the, and the history. But if we have a case where it's just not working, then it's not necessarily an exit, but it's a really creative structuring way of what can we do to kind of take this company to the next level. And a lot of times it's about intentionally identifying companies that you can merge that company into so they can actually, so you still hold it for, for another few years, but it's a way that they actually are part of another entity that has better execution skills than what the current team is that you backed originally. So those are, those are four different types of triggers, if you will, that we uh, think about and we talk about um, and we execute on uh, for exit. Moving on to the next question, what's the process when a founder has the support from the board to pursue an exit? Yes, there are a few things that need to happen. Normally, when there is broad support, um, it's because somebody has taken a bite they've nibbled, right? It's like you've, you've kind of got a fish that's kind of, you know, smelling the lure and the worm and is, is trying to kind of jump on it. And so you've got someone, some company kind of circling that is intriguing. And that, that, for that to happen again, that's a very long process that needs to be thought through because you want the right type of company to be circling that culturally fits the company that obviously you've backed, but, but you've got that nibble. So the second thing that we always do and uh, would love to kind of have a, 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 an adversarial kind of, you know, conversation with somebody who doesn't believe this, but we always hire an investment banker. And we've got, I think it's a pretty straightforward process to do to hire an investment banker. And there are very, very good investment bankers and there's a lot of crap investment bankers, but the ones that are really good, they're just highly communicative they love what they do. They love being the intermediary and, uh, and the arbitrator. They're highly efficient at negotiating terms. And a lot of times they're, they're, they're shrinks, right? They're shrinks to the CEO and the key team. They're shrinks to the board. And, and they provide you know, a lot of good psychological help to the investors as well. And they know the buyer universe. So they're very, they're, they have connections so they can, they can drum up a bit of a competitive process. Once you've got uh, an investment banker identified, then the second thing that we tend to, to do is we talk about, do we run a really broad process where we talk to a lot of potential acquirers to try and get as much interest as we can? Or do we do a really tightly controlled process? So word doesn't get out um, as much and you try and just get a couple of other potential acquirers to, to the table um, to create that competitive tension. I tend to kind of go towards the tight controlled uh, process, but uh, others I'm sure have kind of done a broader net approach. And then you set up the data room. The data room takes kind of three to four months to set up. And then the hardest part of, of the job, frankly, is uh, approaching potential buyers and getting them interested, getting them from the, no, not that, not that into you to absolutely, this is, this is actually something that's interesting. And then they verbalize terms to you. Then they put that first draft LOI in front of you. And then you negotiate that letter of intent and then you have it signed. 
Once you have that lovely letter of intent that's kind of, you know, three pages to 10 pages long with all of the terms, you've actually done something that is monumental because that is, in my view, the hardest thing to have is to have that actual paper in there. Now, it's not to diminish what happens afterwards because what happens afterwards is ridiculously tiresome. This is when, obviously, the company is, um, the acquirer is finishing all of their due diligence. The team is thinking, oh my gosh, really? Like how many more questions, inquiries, analyses, meetings, calls, twists and turns can we actually have? And obviously, um, the definitive transaction documents are negotiated. Um, and there is a subsequent negotiation that happens in addition to you think you're done because you got that LOI signed, but now that gets flushed out into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents. And, and that is exhausting. And so we see an insane amount of deal fatigue with the team. Um, but, but when people on both sides have paid that much time and attention and money into the process, because you've got lawyers fully fully engaged, the chances of walking away are significantly lower. So that's the, that's the great news is that you, um, you've got commitment and frankly, high deal certainty that you will get to signing and to close. However, there's the odd time where of course you realize that, that perhaps, perhaps that isn't the suitor you want because you go through a process and you're prepared to walk away. And in most cases, uh, a tech company will actually walk away multiple times during this process just to flex their muscle and say, we need you, but not that much. And it just reminds the, the acquirer that they're special, but, but not, you know, the ultimate, yeah. you know, kind of special. <laughs> so, so, so that's kind of, that's the, that's the process that we go okay. through. And how long is this process? Oh goodness. If, uh, if the company is really sought after and you've got a uh, well-organized process and terrific investment banker and a highly motivated buyer, we've seen it go as fast as three months. Um, most times when you actually engage an investment banker and get to the end, it's about a year. It's about 12 months. So that's, that always be thoughtful. It's quite, you know, it's interesting. Many of our entrepreneurs that we've worked with, they get to the letter of intent stage and the signing and they're so stoked they're so excited and they have every right to be that they've gotten to that stage and they think it's just going to be a matter of weeks <laughs> until they close and then they find out that finishing up the due diligence getting the necessary approvals from the corporation and getting the you know the legal documentation of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages figured out it will take months and months and months, and that's why the deal fatigue happens, and they're so yeah. exhausted. So that that final process can can take upwards of six months to close. Yeah. And how does it work? If we look at the public market, it's always with that the buyer is the one finding the startup, and you mentioned that it's sometimes you need to go out and find the buyer. Oh yes, so, I I would actually say so. So I started by saying one of the biggest mistakes investors make is not doing enough work on the exits. It's fascinating to see how many venture capitalists think that a buyer is just going to, you know, just fall on the company's lap and say, (laughs) ta-da, we're here, you're beautiful and we want you. It doesn't happen very often. So so what needs to happen is you need to be incredibly proactive, hence why at the time of investment and at the very first board meeting, we always have a handful of slides that are just around the strategy of exit. So you can warm up the potential acquirers. And in, in McRock's first fund, we had one company, uh, a NASDAQ-listed uh, company called Aspen Tech, that actually has acquired two of our companies. Um, and they, uh, they, they just looked at it and said, wow, this is, this, we've got such an overlap in our strategy. And the years it took to develop that relationship with Aspen Tech um, was very thoughtful and very intentional, and it worked. But to think that you will just have a company kind of arrive doesn't happen. I will say that I think, I think management teams, founders, do a really good job if they're obviously outward facing and working partnerships with with companies like you know Amazon and Microsoft because they're they're so focused on small and medium-sized enterprises these days that 
if they do a really good job of positioning their companies, that's where, again, the discussion starts. But I wouldn't say that it's a cold reach out from an acquirer to a company. I think it always starts with this relationship that you're trying to flesh out because you've got this commonality that you're trying to pursue, but it's not necessarily at the beginning around acquisition. It's around partnership. So right now we have spoken about exits and all the exits seems to be good. So my question is, are all exits really good or they're considered good or there's something as forced exit as well? Yes, so absolutely there are forced exits and not all exits are good. I always giggle at the venture capitalists that say, yes, I had five exits this year. And then you say, oh, you did. And then they kind of whisper in your ear, yeah, five went bankrupt. And, oh and that God. to them is an exit because they're, they're no longer, it's no longer part of their portfolio or active portfolio. So I will say not all exits are good. Normally, obviously, the exits that are not all good are distressed companies where you, um, obviously, if they're not closing their doors and going bankrupt, we call it kind of the dive and catch. You are diving and catching the company and trying to figure out something creative from an acquisition of the entity and the shares or an acquisition of the assets or a merger of that company into a bigger company, but you're trying to figure out creatively what to do. It is one of the hardest things to do because nobody likes to touch the companies that aren't performing. And it's kind of when you lose your friends. As as a founder, he will see his investors, I would imagine the majority of the investors kind of hide their head and and cringe because they they can see that it's not going well. However, there are a few investors, and my co-founder is one of them, that actually runs towards those companies and is trying to be as creative as possible and offering assistance and help and is cold calling and thinking creatively about who in the universe do we think could actually work with that company. And he's doing it not weeks or months before a company is, is, is starting to really, truly struggle where they're about to close the door. He's doing that kind of a good kind of 18 months before that happens because he knows the time it takes. But it's, it's really hard, right? Just the, the badass exits that um, are obviously not the complete and utter failure exits of bankruptcy are, um, are, are the difficult ones and they're the underappreciated ones that happen from uh, the investor side. They don't understand how much effort and work uh, goes into it. When I, when I look at, we had two very successful exits last year, as you mentioned in 2019, and in my opinion, while the, the management teams that we backed were incredibly uh, exhausted after they finished the whole process, I believe that it actually went fairly smoothly on both, on both processes. I've had experiences with other companies where you don't even get the return metrics, nearly the return metrics of what you get on the successful exits. And the amount of rolling up your sleeves and the amount of push-ups you have to do with, with the CEO and the team and the board is, is literally a factor of 100 times that of what you have to do for the successful exits. And, and you finally get you know, investor money back and a little bit you know, more than that. You distribute that out to your investor base and you don't even get a thanks for that. Because there's no appreciation. They just look at the metrics and go, well, that sucks. You only got like a one and a half or two times return. I I thought this was going to be a lot more. What they don't realize is those companies were about to crash and burn and they were going to get zero back. But they, you know, they don't, the, the investors that are behind the venture capital funds, they don't just, they don't get that visibility or appreciation for, for it could have been 100% 100% of their capital would have been gone versus, wow, they got their capital back and, and then a little bit. Yeah. And so that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Following up on this question, how much time do you invest more on, or normally we see invest more on companies which are like dying or about to die compared to a good com- performing? Because isn't there a matrix within a VC firm that if a company is doing good, we need to dedicate this much percentage of time versus a company which is doing bad? Because if we invest more energy on companies which are doing bad, it will create a skew. Absolutely. So there's there's a, a, a great question. And obviously, picking up on the experience that you personally have, 
it is absolutely the case that investors will spend more time and effort on the struggling companies and not enough effort on the companies that are doing really well because you just kind of say, yeah, I trust them. They're doing great. And then, as we all know, the road to building a great company is incredibly rocky and there's far more downs than there are ups. And and even those great companies are going to have those moments where they you need to jump in and help and support. And so when we started our firm, we were, Scott and I were both uh, partners in a Swiss-based venture capital fund, uh, even though we're both Canadian, but I was based in Switzerland and Scott was based here in Canada, managing the North American uh, portfolio. And our partnership, which consisted of five people, really spent a lot of time on the dogs. And we had the same observation many, many years ago now. And when we started McRock, we pinky swore to one another that we would never do that. And we still do it a little bit because out of necessity, and we truly think it is out of necessity, but we've had more conversations about who's the best person to serve on those boards of the fledgling companies. Do we double down and we both go, nope, we don't, because it's not worth the effort given the return that we've got. And so we've retracted and stepped off of boards because Scott is a scrappy guy who actually runs towards those companies to try and creatively do the, the dive and catch and lift them back up and push them out on their way so we can continue to grow the company. It's not necessarily an exit. It's more like a uh, let's fix them and repackage and, and see if we can get them back out. He tends to go towards those types of companies a little bit more than I do. And it's a very thankless job because he doesn't, even though he's doing considerably more intellectual uh, and executable type work than, than the easier ones. So yeah, good, good observation. You shouldn't, you ha- but you have to be really self-aware um, and say, gosh, look at how much time we're spending with that, that team and they're going nowhere. Uh, so let's still work with them, help them figure it out but let's not both spend our time as co-founders trying to do that. I can, I can always help Scott. Scott can always help me behind the scenes, but we don't always have to be uh, together and in their face to try and help them figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. So moving on to one of the, I would say, often asked questions within the VC ecosystem is Canadian VCs are known to exit early. Do you agree or why, if that's the case, or if not, that's the case, why this perception? Yes, I, I understand the question and the perception out in the market that Canadian investors exit too early. I don't agree with it. When we think about Rugged Com and Pure Technologies, they had gone onto the TSX, so they were public companies at the time of acquisition. And they were acquired for half a billion dollars each, and they were able to continue to grow and scale that business. And I just think that we don't have enough exits yet in Canada. Um, I think our market is, is quite immature relative to the U.S., and of course, the U.S. is the pinnacle market, right, that we all hold ourselves up to um, and, and try and strive to be. But I think from an exit standpoint, we're doing better than we ever have ever in Canadian history for Canadian tech companies. You can, you can, you can rattle off all the exits that we have had. We actually did a report, and this report is dated. It was probably 2013 because so many, so many people were like, man, Canada sucks, and any exits that have happened, they've happened too early, and hindsight 2020, yeah, sure, so take that kind of one company out there that you could do hindsight 2020 on, and, and, and that's, that's, that's easy to kind of say, we did it too early. I have spent most of my career investing in the US and Europe and Canada, and I can say hand to the heart, I have never had, never had, an investor professed to me, and I'm close to lots of investors because I've been doing this for 20 years, say, man, we exited too early. I've never had that. What I have had is, man, do we ever miss that exit window? And we didn't exit when we should have exited. It's always a, I wish we had and we didn't. So I, I do hold firm that we're on the right path of growing really great Canadian tech companies. 
It's a dangerous game to compare Canadian tech companies with U.S. tech companies because I am proudly different, um, and I think Canadian founders are proudly different than American founders. Canadian companies grow their business, fundamentally grow their business better and faster than U.S. tech companies on considerably less capital. And so it just shows you how, how industrious Canadian founders are. And it's not that one's good and one's bad because one could arguably say because Canadian entrepreneurs may not be seeking as high evaluations and as much capital as U.S. founders are, I bet at the end of the day when they do the math, they're netting the same amount of absolute dollars in their pockets with the caveat there that, of course, the federal government needs to change their, their personal uh, income tax uh, you know, plans so, so we're competitive on an individual basis. But I would imagine that, that many of the companies are very much, uh, many of the founders are very much as profitable um, as the U.S. founders through, through exit. So a contrarian view. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I agree the point that missing out the exit window this is something which no one discusses of. So it takes me to my next question that how to decide the right time for exiting a business because we, you just talk about the exit window and if we see PayPal as an example, it was sold in 2003 for 1.5 billion, but today it's valued far more than the parent company itself. So how do you measure these things? Because this question it links back to exiting early versus missing out the exit window. So the one thing I'll, I'll, I'll say is I, I think many people can make those kind of comments with hindsight. And I, th I, I think it's an outlier. So what, what we always focus on, we could have been that because, again, we've got this optimistic wiring to us that says that's where, that's where we can be. But if you look at where most companies are, and they're so wildly successful – but they're not in these billion dollar kind of, you know, uh, valuations. It's, 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 um, to me, it's just not a, it, it's not a relevant comparison because we can always pick these outliers and That's say, true. this is it. What I will say is that exit is again, not always through acquisition. Sometimes a, a founder will pursue or a management team will pursue acquisition and then they'll stop themselves and say, huh, maybe I actually want to take this company public. Maybe I want to be, um, for my own personal development, I want to experience what it's like to be a public company CEO. And think about the founder journey and how cool that is that they've been able to take a company from the creation idea stage up to a uh, financial success privately and then be able to successfully have a public offering continue to raise money through the public markets and talk to analysts around the world just from a just from a kind of a career professional development standpoint wow what a journey to go on that that side so we see a lot of interestingly we've seen a lot of successful founders kind of take that 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 public offering piece and then they can see how far they can get the valuation of their company and they can still stay, if you will, at the helm uh, and, and play a really pivotal leadership position. And, and uh, again, there are more and more companies these days, and there's that, this is a whole separate podcast on this, that have wanted to stay proudly private and just make sure that there are secondary opportunities where the earlier investors can exit and you can bring in private equity investor investment that is significant and sizable and equivalent to what you'd get on the public markets. And you don't have to deal with all the public market requirements and governance that, that is, is required. So I think, I, I think it's, it's, it's a hard one because the one specific example that, that you provided is one, one of millions, That's right? True. But it is the outlier. And, and so so it's not to say we don't want companies to get there, but if you look at Shopify, yeah. they're getting there. They're yeah. getting there. And how did they get there? Oh, they went public. Yeah. So, so we just need more examples of companies that have had phenomenal growth, great valuations that are reflecting that growth, 
and liquidity for investors along that growth journey that they've been on. And, and I, think, I think that's what you have to kind of pick apart is, is that kind of nuance, if you will. And PayPal wouldn't have exited. We, I don't think we would have Tesla or SpaceX today. So. And that's so, so this is probably one of, the, uh, one of the more important points to make in that when you look at ecosystems taking place, what we have seen for the most part, in, and Kitchener-Waterloo is a great example of that from a Canadian standpoint, and there is an ecosystem of successful entrepreneurs that are giving back, that are being, you know, uh, angel investors in the next up and coming tech companies that provide one another with a lot of guidance and coaching and advice and, and just really thoughtful uh, actions to position each of their respective companies for growth. And it spawned out of BlackBerry, Research in Motion, and uh, Sandvine. And you can kind of list a handful of, of companies that have done remarkably well in that region that have stayed in that region. When you look at PayPal, again, you're, you're picking on the most mature, established tech market in the world that happens to be in the Valley that, that again, has incredibly high valuations, flush with capital. So it's kind of, you know, what, what you want, you can raise. And, and it's such a great lifestyle out there, too, that nobody's leaving. And, and so you've got this talent that is kind of building on the talent that's already there. And it's creating this phenomenal, phenomenal ecosystem that, frankly, most rightfully so should envy because it's so incredible. But we also have to be self-aware of where our ecosystem in Canada is and the ecosystem, frankly, in, in Europe has been as well, which I think is actually even further behind from where Canada is from a maturity standpoint, and try and take the cultural uh, kind of positives that you've got within your own ecosystem and build upon that. I will say that a couple of years ago, there was quite a bit of discussion around how we could get access to talent for the first time, tech talent from the U.S., because many people who were not born in the U.S. and didn't have American citizenship wanted to leave and were forced to leave. So, And many of them just out of principle decided to leave the U.S. And so we've actually got probably a stronger tech um, talent ecosystem in Canada than we've ever had before, in part thanks to what's been happening in the U.S. and the fact that these tech entrepreneurs want to be in a country like Canada. Yeah. I, just, I just wish that we could kind of change the weather a little bit. <laughs> so they stay, and the taxes, and the taxes, so it's attractive for them to stay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Whitney, for your time and unparalleled insight. It was a pleasure to have you here, and I hope my audience will really find the discussion very insightful. I found it very insightful. Thank you again. And with this, I will conclude the first episode of year 2020 and fifth episode of podcast series Venture Journey. Thank you for listening Venture Journey. Stay tuned for more updates. <laughs>